the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. In this episode, we are lucky to be joined by Dr. Robert Edwards. Bob is a trained mathematician who studied at Cambridge and earned his PhD from the London School of Economics. He's been running his own research firm for 30 years and has his pilot's license, has experience skydiving, and has lived in way more countries than I've ever visited. Bob has a very impressive resume, but the thing I'm most impressed by is his new book, D.B. Cooper and Flight 305. That book comes out November 24th, 2021, yes, on the 50th anniversary. As of this recording, we're still a month away from its release, but I can tell you it's already making waves in the vortex. Ladies and gentlemen, my good friend, Dr. Bob Edwards. Bob, you have a new book out, D.B. Cooper and Flight 305. Yes, and uh, Darren, you are the first person outside Schiffer Books to receive a copy, even before me. I noticed that I got my copy a couple days before you. I'm yes. pretty excited about that. There's mine. I have the yeah. I have the dust jacket off mine right now because I wanted to keep it nice while I was reading it. Yes, okay. I, I have to say that my first impression of the book before I even started reading the text inside was, it's a beautiful book, really well made. It, it looks fantastic. The pages are almost like magazine quality inside. Yeah. It's really, really well done and put together. Thank you. And uh, that's all down to uh, Schiffer Books. Uh, I was also personally very happy with the quality. Uh, they put a lot of work into it. I know that Pete Schiffer personally uh, endorsed the project early on. Uh, Bob uh, Biondi, my development editor, was very, very supportive through the whole process. And um, I think that the design people did a very good job with the cover. I liked very much their idea of the shades and the die cast uh, cut through the cover, which lets you see the little airplane inside. Um, I will uh, allow that that airplane was my suggestion. That's uh, the one design aspect that I proposed. And also I liked the fact, and it may not be very evident, but if you look at the cover, you can maybe see in the flight path uh, that there is something like the outline of um, a man's face in profile. Yes, I did notice that. Okay, and I like that a lot because for me, the combination of the man's face in profile and the shades uh, evoked for me the story by H.G. Wells of the Invisible Man, <laughs> who also wore shades the whole time and you never saw his face. And to me, Cooper in some way is the Invisible Man, the man that nobody ever saw. Well, before we get too uh, into the weeds in your book, 
How did you get started with D.B. Cooper? I mean, you don't live in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. Yeah, that's correct. And I have to admit, I have not even ever visited the Pacific Northwest. Uh, although I have visited many parts of the U.S., but never the Pacific Northwest. And now I wish I had. And maybe, And I wish that I will have that opportunity someday when conditions permit. Uh, the original impetus for this was that I suppose, and I do not remember exactly the uh, occasion, but I suppose I came across the story of Cooper on some website or other, it might have been Wikipedia, and uh, I was... I think quite intrigued. And uh, I thought, well, this is nice. It appeals to me on two levels. Firstly, it's in some way an aviation story. And uh, you will have seen, I guess, from my CV that I uh, have a private pilot's license. I have flown different types of airplane. I have some parachuting experience. And so uh, some aspects of the flight appealed to me as uh, a person with uh, ex experience in aviation. And the second aspect I think that appealed to me was that I, I could see this as in some sense, a mathematical story. And again, you know, I'm a mathematician. I have worked with data all my life. And uh, I could see that some of the aspects of this mystery could be possibly unraveled with the aid of mathematics. For example, what is central to the mystery and what is, is amenable to mathematical analysis? Number one, the uh, flight path of the airplane. And secondly, the descent path of the hijacker. These are two physical bodies interacting with a mass of air. This is an aerodynamic mystery. And since um, a lot of the debate relating to this case has been about these two aeronautical paths. I thought, well, I, I have been trained in mathematics and I have learned how to fly an airplane. I surely can say something useful about this. So that was the genesis of my interest in the story. And then at first you were posting your work on your blog on LinkedIn, right? Um, I did, I think very early on post one or two chapters on LinkedIn. Um, this might have been possibly around uh, fall of 2019. That uh, sounds about that right. Yes, yeah, so that, at that time, I, I wasn't really thinking of it as a publication at all. I simply thought, well, um, I have something interesting to say and I could share it. And I've done that with other subjects as well, where I did some mathematics and I thought I would share it. For example, coronavirus for example, Brexit, um, for example, British politics and other things where there was some way you could approach it from a mathematical angle. So I posted a, a few extracts, I think, at that time. And um, this, this, at, that, at that point, I thought, well, I'll leave it at that. I don't think I have anything more to say. And probably from about the fall of 2019, for maybe three months or so, I just let it go. And I did other things. And and I think that I came back to it maybe early 2020. I don't know why. <laughs> I think maybe for some reason I thought, well, perhaps I could take it further. I mean, maybe I could, um, perhaps it was at that point I thought maybe I could interest a publisher in that. I no longer remember what my thought processes were at that time. 
Well, I could tell you that's how I was introduced to your work before the book came out because I'm so obsessed with this case. I'm constantly just like scouring the web um, for any reference of D.B. Cooper. And when something new pops up, it's it's very exciting. And then to, to read your work, it approached it from such a different angle than a lot of the other D.B. Cooper researchers had done. It was just this heavy mathematical analysis of the flight path and probable drop zone. Well, I, I apologize for that because I realized now with hindsight, that was very technical and would not appeal to a very wide audience. Uh, so I thank you for being sufficiently interested to follow it. It's true. I was looking at it purely from a technical point of view. I wasn't interested in the theories of who the person was. And I didn't even really know anything anything about the characters, the personage, the personalities involved. And I think it was only later on, in around spring of 2020, when I thought, well, I, I ought to return to this. And uh, I, I need to understand more about the story. And at that point, I, I started reading uh, the FBI files, both in, in their redacted form as they exist on the FBI vault. And also at that time, there were some unredacted interviews on the internet. They, I believe they no longer exist, but at that time, some, some people had put, and I don't quite know where they got those copies, but there were unredacted interviews with the cabin crew, the flight crew, and some of the passengers. And when I read these, I thought, well, you know, these are real people who lived through this experience and, and they have a story to tell. And the story is really riveting. It's what in Britain we call a, a ripping yarn. It's a great story. And I, at that point, I wanted to know more. And um, I started the process of um, downloading the FBI files, which, as you know, are very hard to digest. And... Um, very difficult to process because they're all scanned files and they're not searchable. Uh, But I did over time download at least the first 19,000 pages. I got up to about release 48. And eventually uh, I found a way to make them searchable. I found some software whereby you could turn them into searchable PDF. And that way you could run keyword searches and you could pretty much out of this great mass of indigestible material, you could find some nuggets of gold. Uh, And probably out of that, I I assembled, uh, for me, what was the the essential counterbalance to the mathematics. In other words, the real stories of the real people who lived through this event. Well, I think you did an amazing job with the FBI files. Because there isn't, because of the timing of your book, there... I think there's maybe one other book that sort of addresses it a little bit. I mean, but your book pulls things straight out of the FBI files and puts them in a very nice and easy to digest timeline. Yes. Well, thank you for those kind words. It was obvious um, to me, and I think maybe this is an important part of what we should say in this broadcast, that I wanted to work only with source material. I wanted to work with original source documents and not be distracted by anything else from any other author. And it's for that reason that I, as I said to you in my email, I did not read any other book on D.B. Cooper or on this event. I did not watch any movie, any documentary, anything of that nature. I did not want to be distracted 
from the documents themselves, because in my mind, whoever else had written or broadcast or made uh, movies about this case could only have the same documents which I had. As far as I could see, there could, they couldn't be any other source material. Everybody has access to the FBI files if they wish. Everybody has access to the what's on the FBI website. Uh, everybody has access to the FBA, the the FAA, the uh, um, U.S. Geological Survey, all the things which uh, Wayne Walker mentioned on his website. All those source materials, everybody can get them. They're all available. They're free for anybody. So I thought, why don't I stick with the source material? I do not want to be somehow influenced by other people's uh, interpretations. The second reason for that is that um, if I were to look at secondary material that other people had produced, there would be the question of, well, how could I validate this? I mean, do I take this person on trust? Do I assume that they have material which I don't have? If they do, how do I validate it? How do I go to other people's sources? Because that's not easy to do. You, you really do not know what, what material they were using. So I thought, let me stay clear of it. Um, let me work with the documents. So that was my underlying strategy. Everything that you see in the book, every sentence in the book, I think, has got, if you like, an audit trail. It's got something behind it. I can back it up. If it isn't explicitly referenced in, a, in an end note, if anybody wanted to challenge me on anything I had written, I could say, okay, it was for this and this and this. And that way, it's, you know, to my mind, um, it's, uh, it's solid. It's not, it's, it's not speculative. It's not wishful thinking. And I'm not promoting any preconceived narrative. I'm presenting the facts. I obviously present my interpretation of the facts in terms of probabilities, but the reader is free to judge those probabilities differently and to say, well, okay, I, I, can, I like the way Bob Edwards has drawn these, referen these inferences or these conclusions. I have a different view. I think it happened differently. That's fair enough. At the end, I think you've got to let the reader uh, be the judge and not try to, I don't want to push uh, a narrative. I think that's fair. Although I'll say you definitely back up your information considering the last 40 plus pages of the book are indexes, definitions, sources. Well, that's, that's required. A publisher requires those things. The endnotes are there to show you that what's in the main text is backed up. The sources are there because publishers want to see this. They, have to, they require an author to state the sources. And the index is there because publishers also require it. They expect, and of course, it's a little bit of an anachronism in these days of electronic documents that you need an index at all, uh, because normally if it's electronic, you just do a word search. But in a physical book, yeah, publishers need an index. And that was the very last thing I had to do when the book was in layout form and all the pages were paginated. Then I had to go through every page and identify the keywords that needed to be indexed. What was your least favorite part of the whole book writing process? I'm not sure that there was any least favorite, to be honest. Um, well, okay. The, the, the items, the, the areas where um, I struggled the hardest were in reaching out to people that I had hoped um, could 
could uh, add something, add value to what I was doing. That included the cabin crew, the flight crew. Uh, it included the um, FBI agents. It included the ticket agent at Portland. Um, in all cases, I wrote, I wrote to every person that I could identify. Some of them are now deceased. Some of them can no longer be located. I used, obviously, uh, sources like the U.S. White Pages, Radarists, that's them.com, all the standard sources whereby you do a reverse people search, peoplesearch.com, sites like that. And because I did not want to cold call people or come at them out of the blue, in, in every case, I, I wrote to them by snail mail from uh, England, where I was at that time, and sent it through the U.S. Postal Service hope, to the address that was my best guess as to where they were. And then I waited uh, patiently and hopefully, obviously with the tracking number from the U.S. Postal Service to see whether it had gotten there or not. And if it had, uh, had it been received or had it been rejected? And that was, I think, a tough part of the work. And especially when you knew that they had gotten it and they didn't respond. Then I thought, well, did, did I not tell my my question right? Did I annoy them? Did I intrude on them? Or maybe it was it just that um, you know they don't want to know about it anymore. So as I said to you in my last email, out of all the past, I wrote to all five of the surviving flight crew, except for one, whose address is unknown, as far as I know, to anybody. I wrote to uh, the three, the, to the two surviving members of the flight crew. I wrote to um, most of the lead case agents of the FBI, uh, where I could find a, an address for them, which in many cases I could not. And I wrote to, I think, something like 12 or 15 passengers who um, seemed, as far as I could tell, to be still alive and to have addresses in the US. Um, and as you know, uh, in the end, out of all that work, um, three people responded. Sounds about right. Two passengers and uh, one FBI agent. And none of them was able or willing to add anything. Uh, the two passengers, one of them felt he could no longer remember what happened. The other passenger said he never knew what happened. He was not even aware of the events. He got off the plane and then he knew that there had been a hijack. And this passenger was of great interest to me because I had been hoping against hope that he was the cowboy of whom I wrote in the book. I thought I had tracked down the cowboy. And when he wrote back to me and he said, I got your letter and uh, yeah, I was on that plane. In fact, I still have the cowboy hat I was wearing. And I thought, I got the cowboy. I thought I found the cowboy. And then he wrote to me again and he said, well, no, but I was sitting in the front in the first class and I never knew what happened. In other words, there were more than one guy. There was more than one guy with a cowboy hat and my guy was not the guy that I wanted. The one guy I wanted was the guy that had the, if you like, the altercation with the right. hijacker. I was hoping against hope I would find that guy and still I don't know his name. Yeah, I guess it, would they take off from Billings, Montana, right? For sure, the Cowboys would have been uh, out of Montana, would have been either Great Falls or Billings. I'm not sure which, um, but they would have got on in Montana 
And one of those cowboys was the one that went down the aisle looking for a sports magazine and got into some altercation with a hijacker. And if this guy is still alive and could tell us what happened, that would be a gold mine. But I did not find that guy. I know the names of all the guys. Oh, yeah, we have that manifesto. But yeah. Uh, yeah, there's no name associated to the cowboy. No, there is not. There are three possibilities, but I don't know which one it was. And I think I wrote to all of them, but that particular cowboy did not reply. Yeah. And I always think about how how tired some of these people must be of talking about this when they weren't involved. Like you said, many of them had no idea a hijacking was taking place till they exited the aircraft. And this happened over the course of five hours in one day. But 50 years later, people still want to talk to them about it. Yes, I understand why they would be fatigued. And especially the ones who are most involved with the hijacker, the junior stewardess, for example, who was obviously key and started the whole story. I'm sure she does not want to hear about it anymore. And I did not write to her because anyway, I didn't know her address. Uh, The two other stewardesses who were more, more isolated from the process, I wrote to both of them. They didn't reply. And why should they? Likewise, the flight crew, they, I think, have told their story enough times. And among the passengers, again, the passengers who, and there were really only five passengers who had something to say. We all know their names. They're in the FBI files. They said what they had to say. And many of them have said it repeatedly. And fair enough. That's end of story. A closure. I, it's okay with me. Let's get into some of those FBI files. I think one of the things I learned in your book, which I love that I'm still learning things about this 50-year-old case after I've read you 30 books and done 200 hours interviewing people, but you have a December 3rd, 1971 interview with a expert parachutist whose name's redacted. That's correct. And this is a really good interview. And you say in the book, why hasn't this been circulated more? Because it's important. And basically, the FBI is asking this parachutist, is this jump doable? And not only does this guy say, yeah, it's totally doable. He's like, it'd be easy if you had a couple of prior jumps. It didn't matter that he was wearing loafers. The guy was just super confident. Oh, yeah, the jump's totally doable. You pull the ripcord and you're going to survive. Yes. I, I, firstly, I felt that interview said everything that had to be said about whether the jump was doable. I'm also surprised that 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 interview did not get more circulation. For me, the the benign nature of the jump was, I think, um, made clear from that interview. Nevertheless, uh, again, as you will see from another chapter, I did have, and I was very fortunate to have, uh, correspondence with a, a smoke jumper, Uh, who had participated in the tests at Tachli, and he was very kind to share with me his own experiences of jumping from a 727 rear exit. Somewhat different circumstances, obviously temperature, daylight, and uh, the removal of the uh, air stair made it different. But he did, I think, reinforce my feeling that the jump was benign. You would expect the jump to be benign in any case, 
because you are completely protected from the airflow. You probably know that many jumpers have jumped from 727s as well as DC-9s. Yeah, I had I had Dan Greider on the show recently to talk about his 727 jump. Yes, I uh, I saw that. I haven't watched that episode yet. I think you just posted it mm-hmm. uh, today or yesterday. Uh, yeah, no question. Uh, uh, jumping from a 727 or a DC-9 or any airplane with a rear stairwell is, is not a big deal. The uh, airspeed, 150, 160 knots, it's not a big deal. I think the issue of the, of the, the nature of the jump, I, I, for me, was quite established. If you had to give odds, I know you're going to be mad. I'm going to make you speculate. What are the odds he lands on the ground essentially unharmed? Well, firstly, when you say ground, do you want to mean ground or water or just terrain? I'll go with terrain. I would say um, 100%. Uh, this jump is not in any way a dangerous jump. It's not a life-threatening jump. I do not see any risk in this jump whatsoever. I'm not a highly experienced uh, jumper, but um, I've done enough jumps to feel that this jump is doable. And I have the testimony of the person who spoke to the FBI. And I have the testimony of my friend, the smoke jumper. Um, And not only he, but in fact, uh, he and a whole bunch of his uh, colleagues did the same jump at Takli, at least six or seven. So I, and plus, I think it, it's worth stating that uh, the hijacker used the Navy backpack six or backpack eight, it's not clear which, but one of them, and he used the C9 canopy. This equipment is designed to save your life. That's what it's there for. You can spin, you can tumble, it will save your life. That's what it's for. So there's nothing about the equipment that adds risk to the jump. In, in the contrary, the equipment, as I understood it, made the jump even more benign. This is equipment which will bring you down to the ground, to the terrain. Yeah, it does the job it's supposed to do. Absolutely. It's an emergency rig. You can eject. You can fall out of an airplane. It will bring you down. All right. The next thing I want to bring up with you is a chapter in your book that I was very pleasantly surprised to see. You have a chapter called The Placard. and. That is something that has been widely debated for a long time. There, were, there was a period of time where I didn't even like talking about it because I was unsure mm-hmm. what I thought. Um, I can tell you weirdly that I have personally seen two different placards with my eyeballs yeah. um, that both claimed to be the one found by, uh, found by the hunter outside two. Yeah, yeah. Did that placard come from Flight 305? Well, I would say um, in terms of probabilities, and here I'm speaking as a mathematician, and I've worked with probabilities all my life, I would say the probability is extremely low that it would have come from Flight 305. Uh, Why? For me, a very simple reason. It was found, I think, approximately eight years after the events in question. During that period... Tens of thousands, I've said this in my book, tens of thousands of Boeing 727s and also 737s, which used the same placard, had flown that route. That uh, The placard was found within, I don't any longer have the exact numbers in my mind, but it's a very short distance from the center line of Victor 23. 
Right. Okay. Um, I would expect over a period of eight years with commercial airliners flying from Seattle to Portland every day, several times a day, these placards come off all the time. And uh, again, I have a testimony, which in my mind cemented that for me, it was from the current president of Northwest Airlines History Association, who was in an earlier life an, an airplane, uh, sorry, airframe and power plant mechanic. Uh, he said, those things come off all the time. So why would one uh, assume, unless you have a preconceived narrative, that it came from 305. Uh, I cannot see a probability of that. I, I, I wrote a whole chapter on it simply because this placard has had a lot of airtime. And I wanted to give it my best shot and say, I think I've looked at this from every possible angle. And it's just a very, very low probability. Okay, one cannot rule it out. One cannot rule out anything in human life. There's a probability attached to everything. I could have done the job. You well, could I could too, have. <laughs> no, you're too young, but I could have done it. What's the probability of that? For all you know, I was in Portland on November 24, 71, and I did the job. <laughs> but you did, must have been doing a good job hiding your accent then. Yeah, okay. But it's also on the placard. It's important to that people know this placard was not somewhere where Cooper could reach it and rip it off the plane. Well, again, that's um, an aspect which I know has been debated, whether it was within the air, the stairwell or outside the stairwell. If it was outside the stairwell, then I think nobody could reach out into the airflow and pull it off. If it was inside, then possibly. As far as I could tell, this is my the best understanding that I have. It's documented by Boeing. It's documented by uh, Northwest Airlines. This placard was outside the airframe. It was not within the stairwell. That's my best understanding. I mean, people may call me out on this and say you have it wrong. But my best understanding is that it was. And by the way, I did ask the FBI for, with a FOIA request for um, an airframe diagram to show me where exactly this uh, placard was located on the airframe. And they accepted my request. They searched for it. Uh, they said we couldn't find it. They refer to it in their files, but they say we could not find this document in question. So it does say in the FBI files that uh, they, quoting Boeing, say it's outside the airframe. I have not been able to find, in spite of um, extensive searches, I have not been able to find a photograph of the airframe with the placard in its normal place. Uh, so I cannot say 100% that I have seen the placard where it's normally located. But like I said, everything that I um, researched told me the placard was not in the stairwell. It was on the outside of the airframe. And therefore, in my mind, could not have been reached by anybody standing on the stairwell. I agree. I, it's, I just, the odds that that placard belongs to a different flight are just too great. And also, if it let's say it came from 305 and Cooper himself threw it, does that get us any farther in the investigation? Um, yes. Okay. Let's let's explore that. Let's say it came from 305, and that the hijacker removed it for whatever reason and threw it. Okay. It tells you that the hijacker was still on board 
um, at the time when the plane overflew Tautl. Uh, Tautl is very, very close to the center line of Victor 23. So it tells you the airplane was near the center line of Victor 23 at that time. And that would be some unknown time between 7.44 p.m. and 8.05 p.m. So that tells you, that's what it tells you. It doesn't tell you any more than that. It tells you the airplane was near the center line of Victor 23, certainly within a nautical mile, I think probably closer than that. I no longer have the figures in my head. And that it was in this position relative to the center line between 7.44 when the airstair was known to be down and 8.05 when the last communication with the hijacker was time-stamped. That's, I think, all it tells you. And that's, like I say, in my mind, exploring a very, very remote probability. I, I agree. And even if it is from 305, it doesn't give us any new information. It just sort of confirms what we already knew. Well, um, it does tell you that um, the airplane was near the center line of Victor 23 at that, in that time frame. And I know there are people who debate that, who say it was not. So in that sense, it's, it's evidence in favor of a Victor 23 flight path, as opposed to any other. Well, let's get into the flight path, Bob. Okay. Is the FBI flight path accurate? Well, obviously, um, the flight path which appears on the map, which is on the FBI website, is a hand-drawn map. Uh, the FBI do not claim to be the author of the map. So when we call it the FBI flight path, we're actually putting a function into the FBI, which they have never claimed to have performed. It's a map which they say, and they're very specific on the caption of that image, they say, this map was prepared to help, I forget the exact wording, you can look it up, to help the FBI locate the something, something, landing zone, something like that. They do not say we prepared this flight path. They do not say we prepared this map. So it's a map prepared by another party. It's logical. Again, the highest probability is that that party was Northwest Airlines, probably technical operations in Minneapolis. It's conceivable that it was a US Air Force person who drew that map, but I think that's less likely. I think it's more probable it was Northwest. As a hand-drawn map, you can see it's a rough map. It's crude. It's clearly an attempt to match up various points which are marked with crosses. The crosses are, one has to assume, are correlated with plots of some kind. And um, if you read the um, correspondence with Northwest, you see that uh, Northwest claimed to have got those plots from somebody at uh, McCord Air Force Base. They don't say who. So there are many, many opportunities for, if not for error, but for inaccuracy, um, I think is a better way to put it. So one cannot, I think, say accurate or inaccurate. One has to say this is one of the pieces of evidence regarding the flight path. Uh, the, if you take, if you assume that this map was made by Northwest and Northwest gave it to the FBI, and that when they uh, wrote their technical memo to the FBI, the two-page memo, which everybody knows about, they are referring to that same map. In other words, the plot that they say they got for the US Air Force, from the US Air Force is also the plot which appears on the map, which is an assumption. But let's suppose that's the case. 
the map and the technical two-page memo are referring to the same thing. The plots will be subject to some margin of error. Let's assume they came from Sage Radar at McCord. The radar would work on a, a margin of error of distance and a margin of error of uh, radial. I, I did try to find out what was the margin of error of Sage Radar, but that information seems to be still classified and I could not track it down. So I, I do not know what would be the margin of error of the plot itself. There has to be a margin of error for sure. Uh, that margin of error, whatever it may have been, was not transcribed to the map. The map was simply points. So there were no um, bars like or lines or circles to say how much error. But let's say in my mind, plus or minus half a nautical mile would seem entirely reasonable to me in the north-south direction and in the east-west, probably more in the north-south direction because the airplane was flying north-south. So, and, and going at approximately um, 180 knots away from McCord radar, you'd be more likely to get an error in the north-south direction. I could see even up to plus or minus one nautical mile on those points. It, you know, that's just gut feeling. I couldn't back that up mathematically. However, that would still um, put all of the plots, every one of them, every plot from Seattle down to the California border, you will put every one of those plots within the corridor of Victor 23. So if you want to debate whether the airplane followed Victor 23 or not, this map tells you that it never departed the corridor. The corridor was eight nautical miles wide. And I, again, gut feeling tells me radar error is not as much as that. Now, there are many other elements of evidence that you have to think about if you want to either challenge or verify the uh, accuracy of this map. And I listed them, I think in my chapter, I forget which one it was, no, chapter four, I think approximately eight bodies of evidence which one can look at, starting with the air traffic control clearance. The, the um, Seattle Center cleared Flight 305 to follow Victor 23. Uh, they said you can go high if you want. You can go to 14,000 if you want. Victor 23, uh, I think the bottom of, I'm not sure if the bottom is 10, whatever. I mean, you can. they said you can go to 14. If you depart from a, a Victor airway by four nautical, by more than 40 nautical miles, you're outside the corridor. And in my mind, a pilot will tell air traffic control if he is doing that, if he or she is doing that. If you have a clearance to say, follow a corridor and you need to depart it or you want to depart it, then I think every probability is that you will tell air traffic control. And such a transmission is missing in the transcripts. There is no communication in the transcripts which says I am departing Victor 23 corridor. And the pilot does not have to say why. Um, it's, the pilot is in command and he can ignore a clearance. And that often happens in aviation. You ignore a clearance, but you tell them negative. You tell them uh, cannot do. When Sully went down in the Hudson and uh, air traffic control told him, uh, you can make Peterborough, you can make Teterboro if you want. He said uh, negative, um, unable. I think the word he used was unable. That's all he said, unable. 
But he replied, he said, unable, I cannot do that. I'm going into the Hudson. I believe a pilot does this. If he's going to ignore a clearance, he's going to say it. That communication is not there in the transcript. Especially when this is obviously going to be a high profile flight. Yes, I, I, I feel, well, I don't know whether that's important or not. But uh, for a pilot to diverge from a clearance, I think, requires him to communicate. And not only that, it's for his own safety. If you're flying Victor 23, Victor 23 is where it is for a very good reason. In Oregon, Victor 23 is running down the Willamette Valley. You've got terrain to your left and you've got terrain to your right. Terrain to the right is not a problem. It's the coastal range. It goes up to 4,000 feet, not a big deal. Terrain to your left is going up to 10, 11,000 uh, you need to maintain terrain clearance of 2,000 feet. If you're going to go left off the airway in a north-south direction, you're going into terrain. You may decide to do that, but you're going to tell air traffic control. I cannot believe they would do that and not tell air traffic control. Yeah. And even going to the, to the, towards the coast, I think you'll tell air traffic control. Yeah, Tom Kay said on the show, I don't see a reason to question the official flight path. I think that's fair enough. Yeah. I mean, I have looked at eight different bodies of evidence as to whether there was a divergence from the flight path or not. In some cases, you've got a communication where the pilot says, or whoever is transmitting, says, I'm on Victor 23. Not always, but sometimes they say. There is an occasion when they get down to uh, Red Rock where radar say, I could see him, he's on Victor 23. You've got a, a point where he is over the Eugene, Oregon beacon, that's on Victor 23. You've got a point where he's over the Medford beacon, that's on Victor 23. Uh, and plus, as you know, um, I communicated with an air traffic controller who was on positions R5 and R6 for Seattle Center. And he said uh, to me in writing, Throughout the time I had this airplane under my control, he was not outside the corridor. That's from approximately Toledo to somewhere around, I would say, Salem. Okay, so uh, there's probably other things which I forgot. I can't remember now. But uh, like I said, out of approximately eight different bodies of evidence, I did not find anything that told me the airplane departed the corridor. All right, so here's where you differ a little bit than the official narrative. So we agree, flight path, good to go. But you are not a fan of the FBI's proposed drop zone. I will not say I'm not a fan. Um, and I do not want to criticize the FBI in any way. Uh, they're obviously top law enforcement agency then and now. Um, I, I think with hindsight, it's easy to see that they could have done things differently. They homed in on a drop zone, I, relying, I think, very, very heavily, in fact, exclusively on Northwest Airlines. Northwest Airlines essentially drew the drop zone for them, and they took it on board and they searched. And as we all know, they found nothing. That's not to put them down. You would not expect them to know aeronautics uh, or meteorology. So if Northwest said, look here, they would look there. That's okay. I think uh, where things maybe unraveled a little bit is that I believe Northwest themselves came to doubt what they had told the FBI. They did propose at least two, maybe three more 
landing zones. Uh, the FBI did not follow up on that. Maybe they ran out of resources, whatever. Who knows? Perhaps they, there was some other reason, which we don't know about, that they felt, well, this ground search is not going to work, not even if we look in another place. I don't have a quarrel with the FBI that they searched in that place where Air Northwest told them to search. Uh, but I think that uh, any, any such proposition, the proposition that Northwest made, was subject to uncertainty. And uh, possibly Northwest made it seem too, too sure. I think perhaps they didn't sufficiently allow for the margins of error. And I've elaborated that in um, one or more of my chapters. Um, I do think that uh, Northwest were a little bit too sure of themselves when they proposed a straight wind going from 225 in a, a direction towards the northeast and that the hijacker would follow that path. Yes, he would temporarily, but as soon as you get into the lower layers, the wind changes. And I spent a big chunk of time modeling the wind using databases from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which I think other people have looked at, but I don't know whether anybody tried to model them. I did the best modeling job I could. As a mathematician, I'm trained to do that kind of thing. And I came up with um, a different view as to the hijacker's descent path. So in my mind, the, I, like I say, I'm not taking a, I'm not criticizing the FBI, but I'm saying with hindsight, with the data that are available now, um, there was more uncertainty in the flight path. Uh, well, let's put it another way. I would say there was more uncertainty in the point where the hijacker left the airplane than they thought at that time. And there was more uncertainty, a great deal more uncertainty in the hijacker's descent path Northwest Airlines gave them to believe. Okay, because of those uncertainties, in my mind, it opened up a bigger, not only a bigger, I mean, given any point, of departure, it opened up a bigger and a rather differently shaped place to search. And secondly, for other reasons, if the jump point moved or, or were elsewhere than where the FBI thought, then that shape, what I call the fan shape, would also move with the flight path and would be uh, in a different place from where they searched. And it's for that reason that in the book I proposed that there are something like five places in the Pacific Northwest where the interested reader, if he or she wishes, could jump in their SUV or their car or their motorcycle or take Greyhound bus and go up there and poke around with my book in their hand, I hope. Coffee stains all over it. When I was reading the, the final chapter of the book, I was thinking to myself, gosh, I wish I was, I was in Woodland still right now. Well, you're in Greeley, Colorado, I believe. Yep. Uh, well... Yeah, it's not that far. Um, I would certainly like, you know, uh, to engage my readers. I'd like them to feel, you know, Bob Edwards didn't close the case. He gave me some ammunition. He gave me some ideas, something to think about. I feel I, you know, would like to drive up there and have a look myself. Well, yeah, There's especially no after all the work you've done. Yeah, why not? I mean, if, if the FBI, I don't mind if the FBI take it on board. Um, I don't mind if the sheriff's department or the local police take it on board, but if they don't want to do it, then let a private citizen go up and have a look. It'll be fun.
It would for be them. fun. And for me. Yeah. Bob, what do you think of the name that he gave? Dan Cooper. Do you think that that's possibly an homage to the comic book character? Well, again, in terms of probability, I think you have to say that's a low probability. The comic book character was written by a Belgian. It was published in France and Belgium in the first instance, only in French, by uh, Edition Lombard, Edition Largo. It was, in fact, a direct uh, competition to the Buck Danny series. At that time, the French were very much enamored of American technology, rock and roll, Elvis, you know, they produced their own Elvis, Johnny Hallyday. They liked everything American. And um, the U.S. was a model for the French at that time, especially for young French. There was an, uh, um, a publisher called, uh, I think, Spirou, who came out with a comic book series. Actually, it's not comic books. They're actually graphic novels. It's uh, cut above a comic. The graphic novels were the hardback. They're, they're pretty good quality. Spirou had a, a character called Buck Danny, who was a U.S. Air Force pilot. He flew the F-86. He flew the F-92, I don't know what. And um, Dargo and Lombard wanted a competitor to Buck Danny. And they came up with uh, Dan Cooper, good American name. But they, put him, they made him a Canadian because, you know, he had to speak French. What are the chances the hijacker saw or read those comics. Okay, it's not zero, it's possible. For the hijacker to have read or seen one of those comics, given the comics, I think, I'm not sure if they were ever translated into English or not. They might've been, I'm not sure. I got the feeling not. I wrote a little scenario in one of my chapters, just uh, you maybe read it, a little scenario, which is just uh, for fun. Two scenarios whereby an American would read a French language graphic novel. Number one, the American is not American, but Canadian and specifically Quebecois, which, okay, it's possible. But I mean, how many Canadians were physically in the USA in any, on any given day of the year? Canada as a country, was a country at that time, 20 million people. America was a country of 200 million people. Most of the 20 million Canadians were at that time in Canada itself. <laughs> a few of them were, okay, across the border. That Especially in Detroit. Out. Yeah, I mean, some Canadians were physically in the USA on that day, but most of them would have been in Detroit working in the auto factory coming across from Windsor. Uh, I'm Canadian by my, myself, by the way. I have Canadian citizenship. I was born in Britain, but I, I, I have Canadian citizenship. So, you know, I've been back and forth across the border. The chances of finding a Canadian in Portland on any given day I think are pretty small. There's maybe on any given day, a few tens of thousands, maybe max 100, 000, a few hundred thousand Canadians physically in the USA at any one time. And most of those are gonna be working in the factory on the US side. Uh, a Canadian to be in Portland is a very long shot. Okay, right now, today, as we speak, undoubtedly there are a few Canadians in Portland. Not many, perhaps there's, 10. Um, okay, so a Canadian being physically in Portland is a long shot. It's a low probability. Not saying cannot happen, but it's a long shot. Second scenario is that this guy is American, but he served in Southeast Asia. And that's another scenario that I raised. Large part of Southeast Asia at that time 
was French speaking. Vietnam, certainly the older generation, a lot of them spoke French. In Laos, most people spoke French. Laos was a French colony. The smoke jumper whom I corresponded with was stationed in Vientiane, Laos. He got called across into Takli to do the job on the 727. But his main base was Vientiane, where a lot of people speak French. You go into a restaurant, a bar, look around, chances are you'll find uh, some books in French, novels in French. You might find a Dan Cooper comic. Okay, it's possible, but probability, you know, it's just, it's a long, long shot. It's a nice story. I love it. But as a probability, I one in a thousand. Oh, there you go. Crushing my dreams, Bob. Well, hey, Darren, I mean, believe what you want to believe. <laughs> All right. I'm not saying it's not true. While you're uh, putting things down, I want to talk to you about two theories I can't stand when people bring them up. Okay. In your research, Bob, did you come across anything that possibly indicated that any of the flight crew was in on this? No, nothing. Do you have any belief or hunch that the flight crew is involved at all? There's no document of any kind that even remotely raises that possibility. I don't have any hunches because I don't work that way. Um, I would look for a document. If, if there were any reason to think that any of the flight crew or cabin crew were involved, I would look for a document. Um, no, there's no document of any kind that I have ever seen that even remotely um, raises that concept. So, yeah, that's it. Yeah, I, I, just, I got to say. I can't stand that one. I mean, the pilots had a great job. If you're going to be in on it with them, then you got to start whacking the money up between people. It's, it's just terrible. And uh, Bruce Smith, he spoke with one of the stewardess's uh, ex-husbands. And he said yeah. right after the hijacking, he believed that the FBI or police were lightly surveilling them a couple of times. So maybe they looked into that angle real briefly, but then there's no evidence. Well, I did not see any document in the FBI files raising that. And as you know, the FBI files redact all personal names of living people. They redact all names and all addresses of living people. So even if um, such a surveillance had happened, undoubtedly the FBI would have redacted any uh, phraseology whereby the reader could detect that. They would redact a whole page if necessary. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've seen whole pages redacted. It's like only the date in the corner. Yeah, there's no way that anybody could know. And uh, I don't wish to speculate on that. I'm all right. Darren. Here's, here's the next one that I absolutely hate as well. Cooper never jumped off the plane. He magically hid in some secret compartment on the plane in Reno. The FBI yeah. searches the plane. And uh, then he just calmly walks off the plane after everyone disappears. Uh, yes. Okay. Well, I've heard that theory, of course. I guess it's not impossible. The FBI, of course, went to some pains to uh, deny it. And they searched uh, the plane with dogs. Well, again, um, I would have to find some document. 
Let me say first of all that I I, I don't quite know the um, the structural nature of the air stair. Um, the air stair has a compartment uh, on the uh, right hand side, the port side, where you operate the lever, the up and down lever, the raise and lower lever. Uh, I've seen some documents which refer to a compartment that has a panel that could be removed. Um, I don't really have any great knowledge about that. I know that the air stair is not part of the pressure um, vessel of the airplane. When the airplane is in flight, the, the aft bulkhead, that's the door which the stewardess closes, that's where the pressure station stops. Beyond that, the, uh, the stairwell is unpressurized and therefore you're in, out there in the cold and the uh, ambient pressure, whatever you may be. Okay, now 10,000 feet, you can survive 10,000 feet. I've flown at 10,000 feet without pressurization and it's not a big deal, you don't need oxygen. The cold would certainly be a factor. At that uh, altitude, as we know, it was about minus six degrees. That's not a big deal, especially if you're Canadian. Uh, to You can endure minus six easily for 15 minutes, half an hour. And that's minus so six in, Celsius. Minus six Celsius, which is in Fahrenheit. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you can do the math. Um, but yeah, minus six is bearable for a short period. But I think to bear minus six degrees for... Um, if you take the flight path from um, Woodland or that area, you know, Highland to Reno, and they were up at 11,000 feet at some points, that would be, I think, probably in excess of two hours. That would be a very rough ride. People have done this kind of thing. I mean, refugees ride the, uh, the nose wheel, you know, the wheel well, and survive. Some of them do. Uh, so I, I, I would say... Okay, to answer as best I can, I've seen no document which gives credibility to that. I feel that would be a very, very difficult ride to endure. And in terms of probabilities, if you have a parachute and you're over an area where you think you can land safely and walk away, I would think the probabilities would be to do the jump. Sure seems that way. May I add, because you, um, I think it's an important uh, aspect of how we view the hijacker. Uh, in my mind, it's a practical certainty that he had jump experience. I think there are some parties that claim he had none or very little, but I, my feeling is, and again, the expert parachutist who was interviewed in, by the FBI, whom we referred to a moment ago, said he thought this person had a minimum, I think 100 to 150 jumps, including altitude jumps. To me, that sounds right. Um, this is a person who has jump experience and therefore the jump is not a big deal. The jump is benign and uh, it's the logical, it's the high probability scenario. Hiding is not a high probability scenario to me. No, and, and I'd agreed with you that he has some jump experience. I mean, 
if I was planning some sort of bold, daring crime where I needed to escape, I wouldn't plan an escape where I'm not familiar with that. You know, I'm not, I, I don't ride motorcycles, so I wouldn't plan my escape on an exotic racing bike from my crime. So I, I'm not an expert parachutist either, so I'm not going to commit some sort of crime in the air and then jump to safety. So I think that yeah. that plays in quite a bit that he's, he knew his chosen method of escape he had some expertise on. For me, that is the highest probability scenario. I mean, clearly, I don't want to speculate and start putting myself in the mind of this person. But in terms of probabilities, the jump for me has to be the highest against any other possible scenario. And again, there's no document to say otherwise. Right. But one of the other things I want to talk to you about that uh, I learned in your book, the sled test. So yeah. my understanding of the sled test was they took the, the same plane, flew it out over the ocean at the same altitude and pushed two different sleds off and it recreated the pressure bump and they were all satisfied. And then reading your book, it seems like they were flying the same plane, but in the morning instead of in the evening or at dusk, and they were flying at 7,000 feet? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, the airplane was the same plane, exactly, uh, November 467 Uniform Sierra. They had one member of the original flight crew on board. He was not the pilot, but the flight engineer uh, of Flight 305 was on board the sled test flight, and he acted again as flight engineer. The uh, pilot on the sled test flight was the uh, chief of technical operations of Northwest from Minneapolis. He was in the left-hand seat. There's a picture of him in the book. He's wearing a kind of yellow shirt. Uh, I named him, but I'd prefer not to name him here on, on broadcast. The uh, first officer in the right-hand seat, I have not been able to identify. I do not know who that person was. He was not a member of the original flight crew. I think he was not a US Air Force person. I think he was a Northwest, but I do not know his name. It's correct that they did this flight uh, in daylight, not at night. They did it, I believe, in the morning. I'd have to check that. Uh, the temperatures, it would have been January the 6th, 1972. It would have been pretty cold, but I would say not as low as minus six. Most likely it would have been slightly positive, maybe plus something. It's also documented that the altitude of the sled test flight was 7,000 feet and not 10,000 feet. That's, uh, I think, well documented. And it was over Hokriam uh, test range off, off the um, Pacific coast, which I think was forced on them because they probably could not do this test over land. Yes, in my mind, there were a number of significantly different aspects of the aerodynamics and of the configuration. Uh, I think that the um, airspeed, I believe, was quite similar. I think it was 150, 160, something like that. Gear down, that's the same, and the pictures confirm it. Flaps, hard to tell from the pictures, but they look like flaps 15, but they might be more, I'm not really sure. But broadly speaking, configuration about the same. Low airspeed, gear down, flaps down. One area where I think this, it's not clear in my mind whether they duplicated the original flight or not. 
it's clear that the air stair on the sled test flight was floating. It was not locked down. Now, uh, that's clear because when, at least on one of the sled drops, the air stair bounced back, which you can see from the photographs. Now, the question is on the original flight, was the air stair floating or not? This is something which I tried very, very hard to establish. And I corresponded with quite a few people, engineers, current and former Boeing engineers, people who were engineers on 727, people who know the 727 very well. Floating is an unusual situation for an air stair. It's almost like you have to pull a circuit breaker to make it float. Because if you are in the stairwell, you push the lower lever, the air stair will descend under hydraulic power. It's operated by the B hydraulic system. The B hydraulic system is a very powerful system. It's like 3000 PSI. My understanding from speaking to Boeing engineers, Boeing engineers was that when you push the lower lever, you will engage the B hydraulic system and it will lock down under hydraulic power. Now, I cannot be sure that the hijacker held it down for long enough for the B system to engage. It's always possible that he held it, he had second thoughts, he pulled it back again. It partly lowered, but the system, the B system didn't come into play. That's possible, I can't be sure. We don't know what physical actions the hijacker took with the lever. But if he held it down, it will lock down. And as you will have seen from another correspondence I had with another Boeing engineer, you don't even need the hydraulics to make it lock down. You can push the struts over a center and it will lock down. So the hijacker had at least two mechanisms to lock the stairs down. Did he take advantage of either of those mechanisms? We don't know. But I think the possibility exists that he was able to lock the stairs down, in which case he would have had a very stable platform for his jump. By contrast, on the sled test flight, the air stair was clearly not locked down, it was floating. I think the only way you can make it float is to disconnect, is to pull the circuit breaker in the flight engineer's panel. So I'm guessing that's what they did. They pulled the circuit breaker to disable the B system and make the stair float. That was, uh, that's not good flight testing. You want to replicate a flight. I mean, even if you want to try different things, okay, then do the same thing several times. Float the stair, drop a sled, see what happens. Lock the stair, drop another sled, see what happens. Fly at a different speed, fly at a different altitude, drop more stairs, drop more sleds. As far as I know, they only dropped one or possibly two sleds. I think they had three. There's a lot of things they did which did not match the flight. And for that reason, I feel, sorry, there is a third reason. Um, and I think that um, Northwest themselves realized it after a time. The oscillations on the bump were not the same thing. They yeah. became conflated after some time to the point where everybody said they were the same thing. The oscillations were a series of oscillations of a gauge, specifically the cabin climb indicator on the flight engineer's upper panel. That's the gauge which was oscillating. When the flight engineer reported that he had oscillations, he was reporting the physical movement of that gauge on the rate of climb indicator. That's one thing. And 
you've seen the, cor the you've seen the transcripts. Those oscillations continued for quite some time, and there was a separate phenomenon, which was a physiological phenomenon which they felt in their ears. I'm speaking about the original flight, uh, where it's like a bump in your ears. You feel it, it's like your ears pop. The same thing that happens to you, which used to happen to you in the early days of aviation when the plane descended too quickly. Modern planes, I think, don't do this anymore. But in the old days, I remember when I was younger, your ears used to pop when you descended. Now they don't. But in those days, they did. And not only that, the 727 was very prone to having pressure bumps in all circumstances. The system was such, the system they used, which they used to call the steam-powered system, was prone to pressure bumps in any circumstances. You could have pressure bumps because the system was driven by steam. I'm using metaphor. I don't know exactly how it was driven, but it was prone to pressure bumps. And I thought it was interesting. You pointed out in your book that during the sled tests, the cabin door was open. Yes. And on flight 305, we know that it was closed. Uh, yes, you're referring to the forward cabin door. The forward cabin door, yes. Yes, the forward cabin door was open on the sled test flight, which means that clearly any uh, abrupt change in the cabin would be felt on the flight deck. Pressure would be the same. Um, we know for sure on flight 305, the flight deck door was closed. I think there's no dispute about that. The hijacker ordered the junior stewardess to go to the flight deck, close the cabin door behind her, uh, sorry, the flight deck door. She complied with that and she testified to that to the FBI. So again, you have a different aerodynamic situation. The sled test flight has got a different pressure situation. Uh, for sure, if you have a pressure bump in the cabin and your flight deck door is open, you're going to feel the pressure bump. Uh, in the original flight, they felt a pressure bump through the closed cabin door, which is a difference. I, I cannot say I know what's the consequences of that difference. What I feel I'm justified in saying is the sled test flight was operating with many parameters different from the original flight. I think... Yeah, it's, it's safe to say that. I, I couldn't believe how many things were different than the conditions of 305. I, I guess I had just assumed they were identical. Well, the FBI documents, in fact, do, uh, they do document the sled test flight. And they are the only documents which do, because uh, you can find nothing from um, Northwest Airlines. You can find nothing from the U.S. Air Force, who were on board that flight. I tried them, obviously, also didn't get anywhere with their FOIA requests. I tried to get the original film of the sled test flight, which has now apparently been lost. I submitted a FOIA request for the film, the full film. Eventually, they replied and they said, um, this, this um, is an identical request to another request. We will release this. We will let you know when we do it. That was best part of a year ago and still hasn't uh, showed up. But the film of the sled test flight, I think would be a very important document to see. Uh, we know that there was a chase plane. It was a C-141. Uh, very probably it was piloted by the same um, US Air Force captain who originally gave the radar data to um, Northwest. 
we know his name. I mentioned it in the book. He was a C-141 pilot, so it's mostly likely he would have been piloting the C-141, would not have been aboard the, the 727, which he wouldn't know how to fly. They would have filmed the whole flight from the C-141. And I think if we could see that whole film, we would learn something from it instead of this very, very poor quality series of three stills which have circulated on the internet. Yeah, at the very least, it would be nice to see. I think we would learn something. We would get a better idea of the flap configuration. Um, We would know for sure whether they dropped two sleds or one or three. We would know something more than what we know. And the FBI are not denying that that film exists. They're saying we will release it, but um, they have not given me any time frame for that. And of course, eventually I had to finish the book. (laughs) All my FOIA requests had to, and I submitted more than 50. That's one which is still pending. All right, Bob, was the bomb real? I understand that that's your signature question. It's one of them. Well, clearly I have no idea. Um, What I can say from my research is that it convinced the two members of the cabin crew who needed to be convinced. Um, So it was real enough. Uh, The description of the contraption, you've seen it. It's in the files. Mm -hmm. I reproduced uh, some extracts from that description. I have no knowledge whatsoever of explosives. I have no idea what a bomb looks like. I have never been near a bomb in my life. I hope I never am. So I have no way of knowing. I'm sorry if I cannot... uh, you know, give you, uh, you know, a powerful statement, but the bomb was real enough to convince people. I think real enough is a perfect answer. It conveys exactly what it, it needs to. Okay. That's best I can do there. All right. How did 5,800 bucks end up on Tina bar? Well, again, I presented um, using Occam's razor about nine different scenarios for sure by air land or water, by human agency or not. I'm going to rule out animal agency, if you don't mind. I don't mind that at all. Okay. I would say the weight of probability has to be by water. You will not mind if I exclude upstream. That's fair. Okay. I don't give a high probability to things traveling upstream. So I will say high probability of arrival by water in a downstream direction. Therefore from a place upstream of Tina Bar. Where that place is, the Columbia is a big river, goes right right up into Canada. It's, I think, something like a mile wide around Tina Bar. And I think it's still a mile wide around Portland. It has um, a lot of tributaries. Obviously, we've all heard the story of the, um, what's the name of that river that begins with W? I've forgotten it already. Washougal. The Washougal, yeah. Okay, Washougal, you've all heard about the Washougal washdown. I give Washougal a very, very low probability. Um, Willamette is clearly a big river, and it's a river which could have carried the, the, the money. In other words, the money, it's, it's possible if we're looking for upstream locations from Tina Bar, we got the Columbia itself, and we got the Willamette. And we have a number of quite substantial tributaries of the Willamette, including the North Santium, the South Santium, 
um, Oswego Creek and um, the Pudding River, Molala River, a couple of others whose names I forget, all of which were crossed by Flight 305 at some point or the other. So if you um, want a, a transmission by water, though all those waterways are possible conduits for the, for the, the money to arrive. Um, now, whether they arrive by human agency or not, it's pretty much impossible to make a call on that. One can clearly imagine a scenario where the hijacker throws the money in some waterway for some reason. It's possible that someone else than the hijacker throws the money in a waterway for some reason. And that other person could be an accomplice of the hijacker or known to the hijacker in some way, or another party altogether. We have no way of knowing. Um, we could maybe try to assign probabilities to that, but I don't have any really robust way of doing that. I think the best thing I could say is that human agency requires some assumptions. Um, you know that I, I like the idea of Occam's razor. Occam said, don't make more assumptions than you need. It's like if you see an identified flying object, you don't necessarily have to assume an alien civilization. Because if you do, a lot of things go with that. <laughs> it's a heavy assumption. You know the story about the face on Mars? Yes. Remember the face on Mars, which was seen by Voyager in 1976? Yep. Yeah, it looks like a king staring out into space. But if a civilization built that monument... Well, we need to look for other stuff, cities, roads, uh, airports, spaceports, uh, loads of stuff. I mean, they built one monument, that's it. <laughs> you got to make a lot of assumptions. Um, I try not to make assumptions I don't need to make. To, to my mind, a human, assumption, a human agency for the money to be in the water is an assumption that isn't necessary so why make it? There are many ways where the money can arrive in the water without any human being involved, either the hijacker or anybody else. I mean, the money has fallen from a plane for a start. Okay, so the money can arrive in the water in a number of ways. It can arrive with the hijacker and it can arrive without the hijacker. Both, okay, possible. The hijacker can, can arrive in the water um, and lose some of the money or all of the money. Or a hijacker in the course of his descent can lose some of the money. He lands somewhere, the, water, the, the, water, the money lands in the water. The money could fall out of the plane even before the hijacker gets off the plane and lands in the water. So there's many, many um, possibilities for money to land in the water. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to imagine ways for money to land in the water. Gets in the water, all you need is for the water to be upstream of Tina Bar. That'll do. You don't even need the hijacker. <laughs> unless you want the hijacker, unless you want the hijacker to be involved. Okay, it's another narrative. Whatever you want, you know, sell the movie rights. Okay, so we found roughly 300 of the bills that were from yeah. the ransom. 9,700 are unaccounted for. How come none of them turned up? Well, to be honest, I haven't even thought about that. I, it's almost like you don't have to ask that question. 
It's like um, if you found a $20 bill on the street, would you start asking yourself, well, what happened to all the other $20 bills? I mean, somebody dropped a thousand here. You know, where's the rest of them? Hey, I want my money back. No, they, they found they found some $20 bills. They didn't find the rest. What happened to them? Who knows? They're in the Pacific. They're still in the place where they fell. The hijacker spent them somewhere. Who knows? It's not a question. It's not a logical question to ask, Darren, to be honest. What happened to the rest? How dare you? How dare I? Yeah, I know you're going you're gonna to cancel my podcast now. <laughs> All right. In the beginning of your book, you, you give thanks to a couple of people. And the first person you thank is, is Wayne Walker, who yeah. many on, on the forum would know as Sluggo, who yeah. created and hosted uh, N467US.com, where he had a really good sort of layout and timeline of the Norjack yeah. case yeah. with with little to no speculation from him. Correct. And he is one of the few people that I'm aware of who was able to successfully exit the Cooper Vortex. And he wants really nothing to do with this as, as far as I know anymore. I have not spoken to him. But you haven't spoken to him either. That's correct, Darren. I wish I had. And I did write to him using the US white pages at the most probable address there are not many Wayne Walkers in Georgia, and there are not many Wayne Walkers who are ex-U.S. Nuclear Power Commission. So I felt sure I had most likely got his right address, and I wrote to him. He didn't reply. I would have liked to speak to him, but all I can say is I'm grateful to Wayne Walker, because without his website, uh, n467us.com, I most likely would not have written this book. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that I used the material in his book or I followed his timelines or I bought into anything that necessarily that he wrote. But the fact that he showed signposts to the source documents was the most valuable thing that he could have done for me. And uh, I built on that. So uh, I'm grateful to Wayne uh, for, for doing that work. It's certainly a great body of work, and it's still available, as you probably know, on an archived version. It hasn't been lost. Right. Uh, weirdly, during your work, it probably went down, right? Um, no, it went down in 2008, as I recall, sometime around then. I don't think so. I think it was available until recently. To the best of my knowledge, when I was looking at uh, Wayne Walker's uh, website, it, it gave some date around about 2008 where it was last updated. I mean, perhaps it went down much more, much later than that, but I believe he stopped work on that around that time, 2008, maybe it was 10, 11, I forget. That, that's correct. You're correct on that. He stopped updating it, but it was still available for people to see until I want to say like 2018 when his hosting on it expired. You now, if you want to see it, you got to go to like the Internet Wayback Machine archive or something like that. Yes, I, I can confirm that when I started my research, uh, his website was already archived, and I, I did have to go to the Wayback Machine. Okay, 
What do you have planned next, Bob? I'm working on another book right now, uh, also for Schiffer. And uh, this project is called uh, Voynich Reconsidered. It's another mystery. You might have heard about the Voynich Manuscript. If not, you can look it up. Uh, it's a manuscript which was um, produced on parchment dating from the early 15th century. It's a manuscript of about 200 pages, and uh, it contains over 150,000 uh, characters in a language which has never been identified and in a script which is unknown to this day, despite over a century of efforts by experts in every possible field related to literature, cryptanalysts, um, medieval studies. Nobody has been able to interpret the Voynich manuscript or discover any meaning in it. That's interesting. I hadn't heard of that. Okay, well, look it up, Voynich, if you like. It's spelled uh, uh, Victor Oscar Yankee, November India Charlie Hotel, Voynich manuscript. And it's named after a Polish, a Russian-Polish antiquarian book trader who claims that he found this manuscript in a castle somewhere in Southern Europe. This guy was um, a, something of a fabulist. The castle in question was in fact a Jesuit college which had a, a library of um, ancient manuscripts and he bought a part of that library. And uh, where it had been in the previous five centuries, there are some stories attached to that, but all those stories come from Voynich himself and uh, we do not know how much invention is in those stories. However, the manuscript in its own right is a fascinating document. Schiffer were very generous to give me a contract to write a second book to follow up D.B. Cooper. Uh, I started writing the book around early July and it's pretty much nearly finished now. Um, I had to deliver by the end of December will be in the 2022 catalog, I guess, one of them, spring, most likely fall catalog. Dang, you're coming up on that uh, that time frame there. Yep, yep. Well, I'm grateful to Schiffer, you know, for have, putting confidence in me, firstly with D.B. Cooper. And by the way, I should add that I pitched to quite a few publishers before Schiffer, including some in the Pacific Northwest and uh, some a number who... I thought would be interested in modern American history, but didn't get any interest. And I also pitched it to over 200 literary agents, nearly all of them in New York, uh, and didn't get any interest whatsoever. So it was entirely by, on almost on a, a spur of the moment that I proposed it to Schiffer, who are mostly known, they're a nonfiction publisher, and they're mostly known for aviation, for military, uh, for any kind of um, arts, crafts, anything which concerns people's uh, interests, hobbies, activities, and so on. But they liked it, and they they um, they took me on board under the military imprint, which is, you know, to my mind, it's not a military book at all. I mean, military art. Implicit in the book in certain ways, the Air Force, of course, 
And the hijacker's life story, I think, has a military dimension. I would bet that. Okay, I'm not going to make a spoiler here. You'll allow me not to, you know, spoiler alert. But uh, yeah, military touch on the book in certain ways. Definitely. Are you going to release an audiobook of the D.B. Cooper book? That would be the publisher's decision. I would be somewhat disinclined to do that because I think the book really needs its illustrations. That's a good point. That's a good point. I worked long, long, long and hard on the maps, on the flight path, on the um, um, correlations of various aspects. For example, uh, we didn't talk about diatoms, but I did a lot of work on diatoms, the, the diatoms which were found on one of the bills. And those diatoms, in my mind, are a very important aspect of the previous history of the bills prior to their arriving on Dina Bar. Definitely. I did a lot of research on diatoms to inform myself, first of all, what is a diatom? And secondly, where do they live? Where do they come from? Where are they born? Where do they die? And do they, how do they travel? And uh, I'm grateful to the U.S. Geological Survey for sharing their databases with me to help me understand that. So those maps and things like that, they're a kind of important part of the book. Uh, perhaps it could go to an electronic version, but I think audio alone would maybe not do justice to the, to the narrative. Yeah, I think you're right. Now that you say that, I totally agree. Because I've listened to audio books before where they're like, oh, yeah, and now look at this picture of me with, with Ted. And I'm, I'm riding my bicycle or driving. And it's like, how I'm supposed to now whip out my phone and go to this PDF that came with my audio book and scroll to, to 7.2 to see that picture of you and Ted. So, yeah, oh, I, I, I think yeah. you're right. Yeah, I didn't even know audiobooks had PDFs attached. But in any case, I wouldn't like to mix media. Yeah. I would, I would probably be happy with an electronic version where the illustrations, the maps, the images, and so on, and the charts and figures appear in the correct order relative to the text. Because they are part of the narrative. They're not in there just to fill the pages. They're there, and I'm hoping the reader will take the time when the illustration comes up to have a look, even if quick, to say, okay, this is part of the narrative, is taking the narrative forward. Because it is a narrative book. Yeah, and you have a lot of tables in there, not just the maps, but uh, tables breaking down probabilities and wind speeds and the types of diatoms where, and yeah, I don't know how that would translate into an audio book. The tables here are an important part of the narrative. It's not necessary for the reader to digest them, but I mean, to be aware that they are there and they are part of the narrative, they reinforce the narrative. And I do intend for the book to be read chapter by chapter in sequence. That's why I call it and why I told Schiffer, it's a narrative nonfiction book. The chapters are not standalone. They should be read in order because they themselves tell this my story the story of my journey about how I started out with this event and made some kind of story out of it. It's, it's truly a, a great book, Bob. And Thank you, having read as many books on the case as I have, I'm, I'm qualified to tell you that it, is, it is, is truly great. I enjoyed every second of it. And again, it's just a beautiful, beautiful book. 
Uh, a lot of the, the, the Cooper books tend to be more self-published. So you don't get like an extravagantly beautiful book. Like yeah, I'm aware of that. And, you know, no disrespect to the authors in question. Uh, I think I got lucky to find a good publisher who was willing to put a bit of investment into it. I'm very grateful for that. Um, you know, sometimes an author gets a bit lucky, and I'm glad of that. Sometimes an author doesn't, and then you do what you can. And the book will be out November 24th. Is that right? Well, the book, I think, is already in the warehouses in Atlanta, Pennsylvania, as we speak. Uh, so I think the stock has arrived from China, where it was printed. They should have it in stock now. Definitely no later than 24th, but I think it will be in bookstores earlier. I don't know exactly what date, but they, they want to get it in stores for sure um, early November. I believe they have stock right now. Well, I mean, if you are listening to this show, I can promise you, you will be very interested in what Dr. Edwards has to say. I would highly recommend you go check out his book. If, if someone vehemently disagrees with you and you got it all wrong, Bob, and you don't know what you're talking about and your math doesn't even add up, is there somewhere people can harass you about that stuff? Yes, they can, I suppose, go to my LinkedIn site which is published and um, put uh, whatever they like to say. I don't mind. I'm perfectly happy for people to take issue with me on any subject. What I would most like of all is for D.B. Cooper to um, put a comment on my website and say, hey, I read your book. And then whatever he wants to say is complete crap or, you know, you got most of it right. <laughs> I would like or even for him to send me a text or a telephone call. And uh, that would be the nicest thing. He should be about 95 now. Oh, yeah. If, if that happens, will you uh, relay the message to have him come on this show too? Well, I will ask him. Presumably it would have to be incognito because I think the John Doe warrant is still outstanding and he can, be, he can, he can do time. I'm not sure about that. I've talked to three or four different lawyers now about could this be prosecuted today? What would it take? And they tend to lean towards it couldn't really be prosecuted today. One of the lawyers told me that the cigarette butts being gone, that's exculpatory evidence. It could have proved that he wasn't mm -hmm. involved at all. So that being gone, boom, no trial. So I, I'm not sure if he could or couldn't be prosecuted today. If, if I was Cooper... Um, mm -hmm. And I'm 95 years old thinking, man, I don't have much time left. I don't know if I would spend my last two years announcing to everyone that I was the hijacker. Maybe I would just write a lovely note and uh, leave it to my wife. Hey, when I die, open this up. Yeah, that would do. That would do. I mean, I don't suppose he wants or needs publicity. Um, I just like him to write me a note. That'd be, that'd be cool. What, what do you think it would take to solve this case? To solve it, in the sense of identifying the hijacker, would obviously need new data. Uh, there's nothing that can be done with the data that exists at present. You can slice it every which way you want. It's not going to produce anything new. It needs new data. And for that reason, I wanted some of my readers to go up to the Pacific Northwest and poke around. And if they find another $20 bill, if they find 
a rusted remnant of a, a Navy backpack harness, a scrap of a C9 canopy, piece of an old briefcase, whatever. If they find something like that, that's new data. With new data, then something could happen. Do you think this case will ever be solved? I would like to think um, that at some time, the identity of the hijacker would be known. I think that would be nice to hope for. Of course, everybody likes mysteries. This one can run and run. But um, I mean, just personally, out of vanity, as an author, I would kind of like the hijacker to, like I said, to send me a message and say how much I got right. If he reaches out to you before me, I'm going to be so mad, Bob. (laughs) Well, I think he has to. He's got to buy the book first. (laughs) But if he does, I'll give you a buzz. I appreciate that. Bob, is there anything we missed? I would like um, my readers to um, dwell for a little time on the final page or two pages of the book which I called, I think I called it the postscript, which is about a real person whom I have not named, who is deceased now, and who I'm not making any statement about uh, the connection of any connection of this person with the crime. And there's no reason whatsoever. But uh, when I found the life story of this person, I felt that This is the hijacker's life story. This is as close as anyone can get to telling the life story of the hijacker, that it was something like that. It's like a metaphor for his story. It's called Postscript. I'd like people to read that if they read nothing else. I would honestly, I would like everyone listening to this show to read your book. It's it's so well done. One of the things I like most about it is you don't have a suspect you're peddling through the entire book. Sometimes I read these books and I can tell like they got the suspect first and then worked their way down the case to make everything match the suspect. That's correct. And I think I said earlier that I did absolutely want to avoid a preconceived narrative. That I think is not doing any service to the reader. You have to respect the reader's intelligence that he or she can form a view on his or her own. So why not share the facts that you have and let them speak for themselves? I give your interpretation by all means, but let the reader reinterpret as they wish. Well said. Bob, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Head on down to your local bookstore and get a copy of Bob's new book, D.B. Cooper and Flight 305. If your local bookseller is sold out, then you can order it on Amazon or even pre-order it if you're listening to this before November 24th, 2021. After you've read his book, you can hit him up on LinkedIn to tell him how great his book was or that you're going to go search his proposed drop zone. We've got links to that all in the show notes. Do you have a theory we haven't heard yet? Are you making a D.B. Cooper doc or movie? Did you find an old parachute and seven $20 bills in your grandpa's garage? Hit us up. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or email us dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to Dr. Bob Edwards for the advanced copy of his fabulous new book and for making it on the show all the way from Transylvania. 
Thank you to Russell Colbert, who refuses to visit Transylvania because of his extreme fear of vampires. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to the Cooper Vortex.